0: Welcome to Big Girl Poker Chat. Hosted by Donna Blevins, the big girl of poker at 6 feet 5 inches tall. This is not your average poker podcast. Donna and her guests talk about poker in a way you've never heard before. Listen in and learn about how to play the game and how to win at life. Find show notes for this show and more great content on the blog at biggirlpoker.com. And now, Donna Blevins.
1: Well, hi, this is Donna Blevins and welcome once again to Big Girl Poker poker chat. And I do love chatting about the game of poker. And once again, I have a treat for you today. I have a man with me who speaks the same language as I do. And you're going to really enjoy this. We're going to focus on the changes in poker, what to expect. We're going to focus on what's really about your poker game. And that's going to perk up your ears once again so that you can indeed improve your game. But first, I'd like to remind you about my favorite, you always hear me talking about it, Bravo Poker Live app. I love it. I've downloaded it directly to my Android phone as well as my desktop computer, and several of my coaching clients downloaded it on their iPhone, and they love it as well. It's real-time, responsive app. Makes it a breeze to check out the current live action and tournaments in your local card rooms. How it works is like magic. I mean, it just, I just can't believe it. It's linked directly into the Bravo Poker Room Management System. That, you know, when you go into the room and you sign up and they put your name up on the screens and you see how many games are being spread, how many people are on the waiting list, any serious poker player simply must use this app. You can download it free at bravopokerlive.com. And you want to go to, uh, to your, your phone store and get it as an app. It's just great. So today, I'm going to introduce my favorite poker writer, absolute favorite poker writer. Dave does not know that I have been following him for the last 10 years. He doesn't know that, because this is actually the first time that we've spoken. No, we actually competed in a tournament together a couple of months ago, but we were not any place where we could even really visit so I kind of waved at each other, but this is the first time that we've actually spoken face-to-face. And I'm going to actually let him say his last name in just a minute, so I don't struggle over that. But he's a poker writer who loves the game. He lives in uh, Pennsylvania. He's happily married with five kids. a corporate lawyer who just dusts me that he brings his intelligence, his genius, into the game of poker. So, Dave... Welcome aboard, and you say your last name for me.
0: Well, thank you, Donna. David Apostolico, and it's a pleasure to to be on here, and I look forward to speaking with you. And if I can just add, I use the Bravo poker app all the time. It really is a, it's incredible how real-time and up-to-date and accurate it is, so I would highly recommend it as well.
1: Oh, yeah, isn't it great? So help me with that again. Say it again for me.
0: Apostolico.
1: Apostolico. Apostolico. The reason I want that to really implant in everyone's brain so that they can go get a batch of your books and we're going to talk about what they are and I'm going to have them actually linked to a collection of your books uh, on the notes from this particular podcast. I want to find out since you're a corporate lawyer, I want to find out first of all how you learn the game of poker to begin with and then how did you get involved with writing about poker?
0: Sure, thanks. I I really started playing poker as a young child. My father introduced me to the game. We would play penny ante poker around the house, uh, you know, maybe a couple times a year with my siblings, and just always took a real liking to it. Uh, I probably really didn't, you know, play throughout college, but when I went to college, it was hard to find a game. It wasn't like today where, you know, poker has exploded and, you know, there's all kinds of available games online and with friends. I mean, there was only probably a few people around campus that would play and we'd have a regular game. And then uh, as I got older, would start going down to take trips to Atlantic City with my brother-in-law and we would talk on and Back on the way forth about uh, about just different analysis and uh, just really started you know reading a lot about it and, and realizing how much I didn't know what an incredibly difficult game it is to, to to get good at even though it's a relatively simple game to learn so the more and more intrigued I became and writing has always been a, a passion of mine it was uh, kind of a nice marriage of my two favorite hobbies so to speak writing and poker that I was able to start writing about poker and. Was fortunate enough to, to find some publishers interested in publishing my stuff, and then I kind of branched out into writing other things, including you know using poker strategies for business and and kind of vice versa as well.
1: Well, you know, I, I it's absolutely perfect when I say that we we are we really speak the same language. What I started out when I found poker originally in 1996. Um, I, I was in my 40s, and yeah, you can do the math if you want to. I was, <laughs> yeah, you can do the math. I was in my 40s, and I had never picked up a deck of cards before. And I was in a business where my husband and I had a real estate brokerage, and we had a contract with the federal government where we actually were working 17 hours a day, five, excuse me, seven days a week, literally that much because we had so much responsibility. And I, was so overwhelmed with work and when i found poker what i discovered was that the only thing i had control over was the cards life dealt me at a particular moment rather than worrying about what i'd done wrong in the past or what was coming in in the future and that's really how poker was such a, a a great benefit to me and i anticipate based on everything that i've read that that you share a lot of that feeling as well
0: no, I really do. In fact, the title of my last book is called "You are the Variable: Playing the best poker uh, Your best poker Possible and the reason I chose that title is exactly what you were talking about that in life in general, you can only control so much you can 't control what cards you 're dealt you can 't control your situation, but the things you can control the number one thing you control is you, <laughs> and you know you are the biggest variable in your life, and I think people you know, sometimes become fatalist or fatalist even, that they, they just assume things are going to be because they're going to be or they just accept things or they don't realize how much of an impact they can have. And, you know, when you're playing poker, it's up incumbent upon you if you're going to best players make the best of their situation. Size the situation up and know when to limit losses and uh, take risks and uh, take calculated risks and maximize profits and choose wisely, and make correct decisions. And they're constantly aware of how others are viewing them. They're constantly aware of sizing up others. They really can manage themselves and have a lot of self-discipline and control.
1: And I'd like for you to describe, you're talking about your mindset really significantly, but tell me what you believe someone should have as a strong poker table image.
0: Yeah, that, that's quite interesting. I think it really depends on what your comfort level is. I don't want to say one size fits all because to say you really need to come in and be fearless or be aggressive or project this image, if if you're not comfortable playing that way, it will be disastrous. Um, I think you should, one, to some extent, hide what your true intentions are or try to stay somewhat neutral in your appearance. because that's what I find works for me. what I also find very interesting is you have to constantly be aware of how others are perceiving you Um, because that's really, really important. I'll give you a perfect example. I think the tournament we played in uh, last month was a senior poker tour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just literally came from a deep stack at the Venetian where I was probably one of the older people in it, and I could see people were kind of looking at me as maybe this old guy and tight and, Different things, and I was able to, to manipulate that and use that to, to my advantage, and, and take advantage, and trap people and have them bluff into me. That was very successful for me. When I got to the Senior Poker Tour, it was kind of the opposite. Everyone was looking at me, asking me for my ID. They wasn't quite sure if I was <laughs> old enough, and, um, and I am. I, they did qualify, uh, but I could see they kind of thought, "Gee, you know, it was almost like I was this young, aggressive guy." And you know, the first round, I happened to get some cards as well. And you know, I was and I was playing well, and I could see they were very cynical and, and mistrusting and thinking I was playing overly aggressive. So you have to kind of switch gears. How are they perceiving me, and how to use that to your advantage?
1: You're absolutely correct about switching gears, and and I have kept this under my hat. But since you're talking about switching gears, I'm actually going to be having a, another book of mine out called how to get your back how to excuse me how to get your game hello your brain there's my mind how to get your mind back in the game and the cover actually has a gear shift knob on it because it's about mind shifting and i teach people about how doing how to do my mind shift exercises and it's such a huge part of your game because you have to be constantly aware stay in the moment and shift your gears
0: no, I look forward to reading that book. That sounds, I mean, I agree 100%. Uh, its it,
1: it, We talk the same language. It's always great. And You told me that you started uh, writing uh, really strongly about 10 years ago. I'd like for you to share with how you have watched poker change over the years.
0: I mean, the biggest thing, and I write primarily about No Limit Hold'em tournaments, because obviously that's the most popular form of poker, and I think tournaments are very different than, uh, uh, you know, obviously cash games. The biggest difference is just the proliferation and availability of tournaments. When I first started playing No Limit Hold'em tournaments, uh, probably back in the late 90s, there was literally one a week, and this was before online poker, there was one a week in Atlantic City where you could play. So when you went down and played that, and I didn't go down every week by any means, but even the folks who did play once a week, it was, you know, you didn't have your first doll in probably until a few hours into the tournament. <laughs> and, you know, these were very, uh, these were not great structures either. I mean, it was just very, very different because when you were eliminated, there was another tournament to get into for a whole week. Mm-hmm. I think now with just, you know, how commonplace they are, and people have kind of broken it down uh, into almost a pure science. and I think they've kind of lost a little bit of that art form. And where people may have been too tight before, I think there's an overemphasis today on you know pure expected value uh, And you know obviously expected value is a very important concept. don't get me wrong. but I think sometimes, especially in a tournament, it's not like a cash game where a pure expected value approach is not always the optimal approach. I mean, for instance, you know, once you forgetting aside side of reentry tournaments and so forth, but once you bust in a tournament, you're, you're out. Or in a cash game, you can reach into your pocket and buy more chips. Uh, so there's value in surviving. Uh, there's value in finding the best place to put your chips. It's not necessarily getting into a coin flip with all your chips at a critical spot. Uh, and there's times you'll you'll have to do that, and times you'll even welcome doing that. But I think today's players uh, have read so much and are so knowledgeable that they almost take it too far to a science and think any expected value play – in the hand itself is the correct play and arguably you can make an argument it is but I guess and, and it's probably much longer than our allotted time for this there are so many other <laughs> factors that go into the overall expected value of your of your uh, value within a tournament that I think it, you do yourself a disservice by breaking it down to any single hand
1: Yeah, and I think you're right it, it has to be with it has to be paying attention to what's going on around you and I really think that A poker tournament is just like driving a car on mountain highways, mountain highways, ones that have a lot of turns and curves in them, and you have to do a lot of gear shifting. And I really believe that that's a great metaphor for the poker game. And I think that that teaches us if we can realize that what we do at the poker table will benefit us in our life because poker literally mirrors life and and vice versa. So if we learn that we need to stay aware and we learn that we need to shift our game and we're going to see what's happening to the other drivers. Think about the other drivers. What are they doing with their cars? And I think if you think about it like that, it makes a whole lot more sense than thinking about, "Oh, what is, you know, what is the expected value of the outcome of this hand?" And and I have to admit that when I first started, in poker, I was very resistant to learning about pot odds. I was. Dave, I was. I, I, I admit it. I, I've always been good at math, but for some reason, I just shied away from that. And when I finally said, okay, I've got to figure it out, I started studying the the books that were existent, existing at that time on pot odds and they were so oblique it was so difficult for me to figure it out and finally I said I'm going to get this and I'm going to get it simply and then when I finally figured out how to do it simply I went oh, man this is really really easy so it's you, it's important to know but you have to set it aside because those cards well it's like we don't need no stinking cards because any <laughs> two are going to do because it has to do with how you play the other player rather than your cards.
0: That's absolutely correct. I mean, I like to to tell people, phrase it this way to folks when I'm talking to them. They always try to look for the standard book play or the standard play, and they talk about that. Well, the standard play here is, and they pat themselves on the back, that they're making the standard play. Well, the information that's available to everyone now is pretty, you know, robust and and, and freely available, that if everyone's making the standard play, where is your edge? Mm -hmm. Uh, What is your advantage? And, you know, your advantage is, you know, I think people forget you're playing poker and, you know, there's a lot to it. And your advantage should come, depending on the situation, it may come from many different sources. But at the end of the day, uh, you have to be shifting gears and sizing up your opponent and sizing up how your opponent is sizing up you. And, uh, uh, you know, take some calculated risks and use things like position and table image and, Cards and when necessary, um, and the cards not necessarily be the cards in your hand. They could be the cards on the board. They're scary cards to your opponent. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things you can take uh, to your advantage if you're playing poker and sizing everything up.
1: Well, what would you recommend would be the best approach poker players need to make when they are are feeling like. Their cards are dead all the time, and there are other players that are consistently raising before they come in. How does a player today deal with that?
0: That's a great question. You probably... Hit on one of my biggest pet peeves, which is everyone loves to complain when people tell a bad beat story. I actually don't mind a bad beat story because in a bad beat story, presumably the player made the right play and just suffered a bad beat, which happens to all of us. What drives me nuts is a card dead story, because in in that regard, I think the player is making mistakes. Yeah, you know, I was card dead for you know two hours. I was card dead. I got blinded out. I couldn't do anything. I was card dead. Well, if your car is dead, you have to do something about it, especially in a tournament. Obviously, a cash game, you can wait it out. But in a tournament, when the blinds are going up and accelerating, I mean, that's not an excuse to be card dead. So you have to use things like position. You have to use things like uh, table image. I mean, if you sat there for an hour and haven't played a hand, well you know what, if you have 10 big blinds and you shove pre-flop, you're probably going to get a lot of respect and people are going to put you on a pretty good hand. So you may take the opportunity to do that before you get uh, uh, too low. But you also have to think of everything around you, what's happening before you and what can happen after you. If there's, you know, a huge stack in the big blind, you know, pushing with five big blinds, you're probably going to get called with any two cards. Uh, if there's a small stack in the big blind, you might get called with any two cards. So you have to kind of think, you know, what's likely to happen when I do push with this short stack. Um, you know, perfect example, I was playing a tournament where I was in late position and open raise with ace nine, and the big blind had about not much more left than what I had, but, uh, and he pushed in, Uh He has to know I'm going to call there. I mean, I I really have to call no matter what. It's me and him heads up at that point. And I don't even like to call at that point because I'm thinking he probably has, you know, a pair or a better ace or uh, something better than I have. Well, he turns over pocket threes, which is probably about the best situation for me. But as soon as he did that, I was thinking, what a terrible mistake he made because he knows I'm going to get called. He was the big blind he would be first to act after the flop. If he had just flatted pre-flop and then just pushed the flop no matter what, he probably would have gotten me to fold because he had enough chips that I would fold on the flop if I missed, and I did miss the flop, and I think I spiked an ace or a nine on the turn or the river, and I won the hand, and he was out. So you, know, you have to think through the whole hand how it will play out. Um and, you know, you have to think about position, and sometimes you are the variable. It's You have to take charge, and it's not necessarily your cards that are dictating what you do, but it's position. If you're in light position and it's folded to you and you haven't had uh, played in a while and you still don't have anything, I mean, you should be thinking about what you're going to do before you even look at your cards, and sometimes that will help you. So I think sometimes we put too much weight on our cards and that's why I say that's only one of the, the variables as not one you can control. <laughs> you know, but how you can how you act and play is, is the variable you control.
1: Yeah, I I agree with a hundred percent. Like I said, we're talking the same language. This is such a fun chat to have with you, Dave. Okay. I mean this is this is so much fun. You know, one of the things that I have learned over the years, because I predominantly prefer tournaments. I do very well in cash games when I do that, and people say, well, if you do so well in cash games, why do you do tournaments? I, I just like tournaments better. Maybe it's, I don't know why. I don't know why I like them better, but I do. I think um, there's
0: more poker, I mean, personally, I think there's more poker playing involved, and, because you are, the action is forced, so you have to kind of think ahead and do things. You can play more by the book in a cash game.
1: Maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, I I was having difficulty with my 1-2 no limit and 2-5 no limit, and and about six months ago, I said, okay, I've got to get over being difficult about that and change my mindset. And I instantly, instantly started uh, profiting and, and coming away with a better game, and it's been just astonishing. In tournaments, what I discovered, was that a lot of people talk about? Um, you know e- e- the the difference between what is short stacked and what's not being short stacked. You know you might start out being three hundred big blinds because of being deep stacked, and then before you know it, you're down to thirty or twenty because the the big blinds are going up so fast. And I think people have to realize that, and they have to realize when they need to make actions without becoming sh- short stacked because making the moves when you're short stacked is when people will call you with virtually any hand so you have to make those moves regardless of your cards based on your position based on the action that's happened or non action before you based on your your observation of the players who are after you and if you're going to come in, <clears throat> say you have 20 big blinds, what do you do? You know, uh, you know, do you still put in? People are doing three, two and a half big blinds, which just drives me nuts. I have to admit to that <laughs> uh, b- because it just it just seems like a waste of time. All you're doing is asking other people to give you a call. I, I believe that you should go ahead and and make larger bets and have and if you're going to do a continuation bet, you want it to be substantial. At the same time, if you happen to be down to to 10 big blinds or 12 big blinds, you might want to say, okay, I'm going to do half my stack before the flop to give other players an opportunity to fold after the flop by pushing all in. And I think it's really interesting when... You count out your chips and see what they are and show these two stacks and then push the one stack in. That other one, I usually it's usually a little closer to the bet line than it normally would be so people see that I'm ready to come in. That makes a significant change in their mindset, and it's a, a case of having courage to put those in regardless of what hits assuming that your hand is great. And two out of three times, they're going to go away regardless if you play that way.
0: I I think you're dead on. I think, I mean, the very first book I wrote, Tournament Poker and the Order of War, was really all about the mindset of looking at your chips as currency. And it it, it really is, how do you maximize the leverage of those chips? Because those are your tools. Those are your weapons. Those are what allows you to advance and ultimately win a tournament. And I think people are too cavalier or don't necessarily recognize the power of those chips or don't use them to maximum leverage. I mean, I think the examples you just gave are great ones. I think people too often think, well, I'm down to 15 big blinds or 12 big blinds. I need to push or fold. And and there's something to be said for that, but that may not... Truisms in general, I think, are bad in poker. Uh, You have to look at every situation uniquely. For one, your stack is only as valuable in connection with the other stacks of your table. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's not just the value of your stack, but you have to look at the value of the stacks of your opponents. Uh, There's a psychological aspect. Uh, If your opponents are expecting you to push with 12 times and you do with something less and you have that other stack right behind you, They're more likely to think you have a monster as opposed to a hand you don't want to get called with. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's all these different factors that go into play, and obviously just the the tendencies of your opponent, how they're going to play, um, what level you are if you're close to the money line. All those different things make a big difference, and you have to constantly be aware of that. And use your chips accordingly. I mean, you should not, every time you make a bet, whether it's two and a half times X or it's bigger or it's less. Or you know, why are you doing it? And are you using your chips to maximum efficiency in making that bet?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, we so agree. (laughs) (laughs) If you you were looking at who might be someone to really uh, appreciate your books, and I believe every single poker player should read every one of your books. There you go. I believe it. Who Who is your target audience? Who is the person well, that you believe would benefit from it?
0: Anybody who really wants to get better. And I've had. Uh, I, I, well, I'll tell you first of all, I don't write about. I'm not. You're not going to find a chart of pot odds and um, you know very specific opening hand requirements and and things like that because there's plenty of people who write excellent books about that, have written excellent books about that and cover it much better than I do. What I try to write is a more philosophical approach and it's more about managing self and looking at situations and you know being a little more philosophical. Um, it's probably geared more towards the amateur player, but I've had you know, top poker players read my books and tell me how great they are and how much, you know, they've gotten out of them. So, uh, you know, I think they are for everybody. I think it's the type of thing that, you know, if you have a fundamental understanding of the game, what I'm trying to do is give you that extra edge, how to look at things maybe a little differently, how to view your chips, how to view, uh, uh, you know, getting over some psychological hurdles. Uh, You know, I think one of the things people – you know, tend to do when they read books is play by the book. And my books are kind of like, well, don't necessarily play by the book. I mean, how can you give yourself an edge? Um, you know, if you have a trouble bluffing or trouble, if you, you know, perfect example, you claim your card debt all the time. Okay. One of the tricks I tell, try to convince people to use to help themselves go over that psychological hurdle is, okay, next time you play, write down how many hands you win without a showdown. And they'll be surprised how, how great that is. It's probably a big percentage of the hands they win. Okay, well, no one ever saw your cards in those hands. You could have had 2-7 offsuit. You could have had error. You could have had nothing, and you still would have won those hands if you played them the exact same way. The hand, those cards just gave you the courage <laughs> to play that hand in a certain way. Now, obviously, I don't want to totally dismiss cards because cards are important and you will play hands, obviously, based on the cards in certain situations. But I want people to open their mind to think, okay, you know, I didn't necessarily need the cards because I didn't get to a showdown. How can I use table image, position, betting, betting sizes, uh, my opponent's perceived weaknesses, the texture of the board to win a hand when I don't have cards? So you know, it's kind of, it's. I think it's a psychological hurdle for people to get over, uh, but once they do, you know, it, it's. I think it's eye-opening to them.
1: Yeah, and it's really interesting because in the 2007 World Series of Poker Main Event Championship, when it was my first World Series ten thousand event? I had actually cashed in the 10,000 World Poker Tour at, in Foxwoods a couple of years before, which was wonderful. Um, but in that particular instance, there was, there was a moment. There was a hand that where I experienced an epiphany, and my, ja- my game changed dramatically, and I had raised preflop with ace and something, ace and a face. I don't remember what the hand was. And the board comes black, and I don't even remember if I had black cards, but they were all, I believe they were all spades. The player that was just after me was a professional poker player that I knew not well. I mean, I didn't know him personally, but I had seen him on TV. He was a very bold player, and I did not hit those cards. I didn't hit them. Uh, as I recall, I didn't even have a spade in my hand. And what happened was, at that moment, I said, I am absolutely sick and tired of playing like a sissy. This is enough. And I came out betting as if I had hit that hand just with like a broad side of a barn door. And the player stopped Looked at the cards that he had again, looked at the, the the board, and he folded and folded them up. He folded two red queens. Wow! And that was such a significant change for me because I said, "Wow, wow, wow!" Here. You just played and you presented yourself with confidence. My goodness, that's what's been missing from your game because we don't need no stinking cards. And a professional poker player gave it up because he figured, you know, I had hit something. And I told him, good fold. And I folded mine down. Always fold your hands down. Don't show them at all. And that that was really one of the things that helped me go from 6,400 players to the top four women in that main event because my game changed. And that's, it it really helped me.
0: That's that's fantastic and uh, well played. Um, I'll just paraphrase. I just received an email yesterday from my most recent article in Annie Up magazine, uh, which was talking about being car dead. and literally it's written to me. It says I was reading your article while playing at a final table of 110 buy-in nightly at the Beauvavage in Biloxi, and it got me into the money. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. This player was on the on the button. Uh, with 9,500 in chips, blinds were 1,200, 300 ante. He had 5-2 off suit, just finished reading my article and shipped it in one hand and went on to uh, placing the money. Uh, they weren't in the money at that point in time. So it's just really having, like you say, the, the courage and the stamina to say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to get blinded out. And it's once you realize that, it's actually the much less it's the less riskier play is to be aggressive in those situations as opposed to waiting and blinding out and guaranteeing mm-hmm. a, a slow death. It's you know and listen two five off suit against a random hand is not nearly as bad as you think it is.
1: That's that's exactly right and and I, I have to say that. Phil Hellmuth had actually, had actually written, It's amazing what David learned playing against top pros. Now he passes this wisdom on to you. So I think that that is just really giving you a pat on the back. And, you know, I, I, Tom McAvoy is also one of my absolute favorite World Series of Poker champions. And he also felt that your third book, telling you how to destroy your opponents at the poker table. He loved them and felt everyone should add all of your books to the poker library, and I am saying that as well.
0: Well, thank you. I look forward to reading yours as well.
1: (laughs) Well, you're welcome. Well, we'll trade reviews on Amazon, which is absolutely wonderful. Of your books, what are you the most proud of?
0: Um, I really enjoy kind of the cross-discipline analysis. So probably I wrote a book called Poker Strategies for Winning Edge in Business. Um, I really enjoyed that because it's really taking poker concepts uh, and applying them to the world of business. I think it's a topic you were touching on earlier, how it's, you know, I really find playing poker uh, really helps me in other aspects of my personal life and professional life and vice versa. So I think there's a lot of analogies between uh, poker and life. I mean, there is a lot of luck in life, and I think we have a tendency in poker and life to downplay the part of luck when things go well and over-attribute it to our own success and and, and attributes, and we have the tendency to overemphasize luck when things go poorly um, and blame it on luck as opposed to really kind of looking at what could I have done better? How could I have controlled that situation? And, you know, there's no question luck plays a big part in, in, in every aspect of our life and things we can't control. But it's focusing on the things you can control and, you know, reading up situations and when it comes down to it, making correct decisions. You can make correct decisions on a consistent basis. Uh, you'll have some short-term setbacks in anything, but ultimately you're going to succeed.
1: Well, here we go again. You're absolutely correct, Dave, because one of the things that I do with my game and with my poker coaching clients is I remind them to set their intention before they sit down at the table and to remind them what I believe your number one intention must be in the game, and that is to make correct decisions and remain unattached to the outcome.
0: Yeah, that's a key point that last point because especially at the poker table it's very hard to maintain that attachment and objectivity. You know, when someone's just beating your brains out or lucking out on you or just playing dumb and beating you, it's it's it's, you know, too detach the personal aspect from that, or someone's trash-talking. I mean, and you have to be able to shut out all that noise. Now, if someone's doing certain things, you may just try to think of a way to use it to your advantage and how to manipulate and take advantage of that situation, but you can't let it detract from your ultimate goal of correct decision-making. And it happens. There's no question it happens where you see it all the time. People get flustered, go on tilt, and, you know, they want to beat somebody as opposed to just, you know, playing poker and beating them that way, they think, you know, it's, you have to, you have to detach the personal aspect from it.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a powerful, I think it's as big in poker as it is in our life. And, and I think that is the perfect intention, for setting in our life as well, because I think that has to do with making correct decisions. And we have to remain unattached to the outcome because we make decisions in our life just like we do in a hand of poker. And that is, as the hand goes on, things change, just like in life. You make a decision, a correct decision, but things are going to change. And we have to give ourselves permission in poker as well as in life to fold. We give ourselves permission to fold, and it's really tough for us to fold when we feel like we have too much of ourselves invested in something, or too much money invested in in the poker, or in life as well. I think that we make we make decisions, we make a correct decisions with incomplete information because that's all we ever have is incomplete information. You cannot have it all if you spend so much time trying to find out what all of the what all the correct information, what all the information is. Well, you're going to just keep gathering and gathering and gathering until you never make decisions. You're like stuck. And you have to make your decisions, and then you have to allow yourself, to, you have to give yourself permission to fold and stay unattached to the outcome.
0: No, that that's absolutely correct, because the decision-making process will change with every new action at the table. <laughs> whether someone else limps behind you or raises you or what cards come or how the action plays out, and you have to reevaluate and make a new decision. And I think that's psychologically tough, as you say. I mean, you know, I, and a good analogy is when you buy a stock and it goes down. Well, there's probably a reason it went down. And instead of selling it, too often people take the position, well, as soon as it gets back to where I paid for it, I'm going to sell it and get my money back and I'll be done with it. Well, if, if it's... It's the wrong decision-making process. The evaluation should be at the current price, is it worth holding or not? It doesn't matter what you paid for it. The same with a uh, you know, pot and poker. It doesn't matter how many chips you've already put in. Is it make sense for you to be in the hand at this point in time? And what action does it make sense for you to be taking at this point in time?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And before we go, I'd like, and and I don't want to go. I'd like to do this for the next 16 hours. I think we're going to do some more of these, by the way, later. Uh, What's the one piece of advice that you would offer our listeners that you you really want them to take away with them?
0: It's really that correct decision-making process and being able to look at things objectively, independently, and look at things a little different. Try to, I mean, poker is a game you'll never, ever master, and the best poker players are constantly learning. Yes, there's a lot to learn about the, you know, playing by the book, and that's critical information to have. And I think today's day and age, most players you come across have a pretty good, strong, fundamental knowledge of pot odds and situations. But what sets you apart is really how can I, you know, get a psychological advantage or philosophical advantage by playing my best, what should I be sizing up, what factors should I be looking at, and what should I be doing to really play poker? Um, and that's where the fun gets, that's where the game gets fun too. I mean, how can I, you know, size someone up? How's he looking at me? Uh, is he thinking I'm going to do this? How many, level deep, how many levels deep will he think? And how can I manipulate that? And it's not every hand are going to be you know, playing some great hand and winning. No, it's picking spots and uh, choosing them, and it's um, you know, it's a lot of fun. And you're not going to win every hand, and you'll pick some wrong spots to to do some things. But they hopefully won't be the wrong spots because you made a wrong decision. It'll be a wrong spot because the big blind woke up with aces, or you know, they'll just things like that will happen. Um, but you know, it, it's and it's really to kind of think about the game and enjoy it.
1: It, yeah, and, and I say when people say, well, you know, look what happened to me. What, you know, I just kind of shrug my shoulders and I say, hey, look, you know, crap happens. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it just no, That's that's, yeah. you know, that's, that, that's poker and, and that's life. And, David, I want to say to you that this has been wonderful. And let me see if I can do it. Dave Apostolico. Apostolico,
0: yeah.
1: Apostolico. Yep. <laughs> I love it. Apostolico. A P O S T O L I C O apostolico okay i i love that you have been absolutely a treat to have on big girl poker chat you are you are a delight finally we know that we do have a meeting of the minds and and that's good people ask me well why do you promote other people's books and things that say the same thing same things you do and, and it's it's because you know everyone talks a little differently and you know there's Other people might like reading your things better, might like reading somebody else's or mine. Who knows? But I believe that when we help each other, when we talk about things that we agree with, I think that's wonderful for life. I think that's supportive in our industry. It's supportive for authors. I think that's supportive to the poker players because they hear what they must pick up and learn about. So I want to thank you very much for being with me today, Dave.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: And I'd like to remind the listeners to go pick up two free modules that are recorded live at PokerPureAndSimple.com. dot com. That's PokerPureAndSimple.com. dot com, and they're they're terrific. They're two ninety minute modules, and you will learn a lot about the basic information. You also get a few things kind of interwove in there about mindset and I'd like to share with you that this is Donna Blevins the big girl of poker and this is big girl poker chat bye-bye for now